Welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. This episode, we're focusing on the topic of art and design. After all, Penguin has always had an outstanding reputation for brilliant, cutting-edge book cover design, and it's something we take very seriously. Now, I know, this being an audio podcast, we can't show you the covers or artwork we're talking about, but instead, we have some fantastic interviews and clips lined up with arty people, from art directors to video animators to critics to popular British artists. And, of course, we'll post covers and links on our podcast blog, thepenguinpodcast.co.uk, for you to peruse our makeshift gallery online. To start, we're turning to our own design teams. They're a busy lot with hundreds of new covers to design every year. But if that wasn't enough, they're constantly rebranding and redesigning the popular and classic books. This summer, Literary Little Birds are reintroducing 20 timeless stories to a new generation under the new collection name A Puffin Book. The A Puffin Book list encompasses everything from Tarka the Otter to The Borrowers via Annie, Carrie's War, Goodnight Mr Tom and Mrs Frisbee and the Rats of Nim, to name a few. Today, I'm joined by Anna Bilson, who is the art director at Puffin Books, who's been involved in the, frankly, huge task of rejacketing these already unforgettable and extraordinary tales. Let's start then, Anna, if I can. Tell me a little bit more about yourself and what you actually do at Puffin. Well, I'm art director for Puffin, so my role basically is to manage um, a team of incredibly creative designers across the whole list. So everything that Puffin does from sort of early sort of board books for babies right through to the kind of teenage fiction. And what made you decide to redesign these books? Basically, it's kind of it's to keep them relevant for today's generation, today's new children coming through who are reading. It's to kind of reinvent them and to also give them a kind of not only a timeless look but a, a look that actually works in today's visual landscape. I was going to say because you talk about a timeless look but at the same time talking about reinventing them for a modern generation it seems there seems to be a kind of conflict of ideas there. How does design bring those together? That That's what design does basically by making sure that we stay true to the, the stories which actually are timeless so actually whether they were written last week or a hundred years ago if it's a fantastic story, then it's going to be relevant. So then it's using the design to make sure that what we do and the way they look sits alongside all the new stuff that's coming out that they have to compete with. And that presumably is a point, that you need to have some kind of visual connection that is appealing to anybody who goes into a bookshop or, or looks online. And then at the same time, you're also having to make it clear that these are part of a series that belong to the same publisher that fit within the expectations of a particular age range. So how do you go about the business of tying all of these many different titles together under one design brief? What do you actually do to do that? That's the kind of the complicated bit, but it's actually the bit that looks the most simple when you see the final jackets, because the only thing that really ties them together is the logo. So we worked initially on creating a new logo and instead of calling them modern classics we decided to go with a puffin book which everyone knows puffin puffin has been around nearly 75 years now so for parents buying for their children they read puffin books so it just it made complete sense that we used that which is the iconic logo we created a very simple logo and then it's all about working out a grid that then gives us utmost flexibility for all the different designs we have to put into the covers so we have a very simple the logo is bottom left hand corner 
we set the author names in the same font at the same size across the top of each book. And then we let the illustrations and the typography for the titles do their bit to appeal to all the different readers because not everyone will want to read all of these books. A lot of people will, but certain ones we also want to appeal to children who like specific types of books. So this is intriguing. So you've got the same font, you've got the same logo, you've got the same size book, let's face it. Do you? And, but the illustrations are all different. They're done by different illustrators. They have they have different styles. But do you have a, a? Do you say to these designers, okay, we need to be within this range of a color palette, or you know, the nature of the picture needs to fill this much space, or do you leave that completely free? It depends on the illustrator. Some of them, some illustrators, we give complete free reign to because they know they have a, a sense of that book and we know their work and that they can do the overall layout. Other illustrators we have to direct a little bit more and if you look at the range of the designs you'll see that some are much more typographic, some are very have very very detailed illustrations and so that evolves. From the point of view of colour palette it's what's right for the actual book. So again you're managing to combine this business of keeping them all clearly as part of the family uh, and immediately recognisable but still hugely individual that's presumably the core of your brief isn't it when you're dealing with yes and that that's the bit that I'm very involved in is looking at the overall series because I work alongside um, like I say the designers in my team we have an in-house designer who worked on this project and then we also commissioned a freelance designer who helped pull it all together and as we're working on all 20 covers at the same time so as the different roughs come in and we're kind of approving those we're looking at the colour roughs and then at that point we can say well actually you know gobbly no it's like we know we want that to be orange that that <laughs> it just were it's so perfect so then we're making sure that actually we don't have three other orange covers um and so it's that balance could, could you just talk us to a, a couple of the titles either ones that have stayed the same because charlotte's web hasn't really changed that's that's uh, so interesting to know what happened to that title and why you decided not to change that one and so, and one other new one I'm not going to ask you to pick out a favorite but just choose one of the new ones uh, and uh, talk us through the process that's involved in making these things sit so well together so start with a new one and um, so the new one I'm I'm going to pick Carrie's Wall because actually that is one of my personal favorites it's one that I do remember from childhood and they've they've been a lot of different cover looks for Carrie's Wall so the initial thought was finding the right illustrator and we've got banks and banks there's so many illustrators out there and there are and actually carries war is an example of being able to use an illustrator that we haven't used before because it's actually waiting for the right project to use someone and when we did we struck on this illustrator the designer came and showed me i was like absolutely brilliant he also had already done a few things that were quite relevant so we were able then to direct him to say you know we want you to do carries war we can either give you a synopsis or you can read it because that's some illustrators want to read the whole books others just want to get a, us to be given a feel they go away do various different roughs and i think we came up with about five different options um the one we've picked obviously has carrie quite prominently which i think um is very striking and it sort of harks back to some of the photographic covers they put on that book before and i think it gives a sense of carrie herself which is really important um and then we take it from there that once we approve a pencil rough, the illustrator starts going to colour. They then supply us with the colour illustration, which we then tweak and um, adapt. And then we look at putting the typography on. Sometimes the illustrator will do that. In this case, the illustrator 
didn't do it as far as I remember. Um, and that's the designer's role to then find the right font or the right hand lettering that not only sits with the illustration, but also evokes the period. Charlotte's Web, on the other hand, hasn't been touched so far as I can see. I, I, assume, I say that, but I assume, in fact, it has been. There must have. have there been any changes, any tweaks at all? There really haven't. There are certain covers that do remain the same because contractually um, we are obliged to keep the same cover way back when it was first written. Um, Garth Richards did the illustrations and it was it was in the contract that whenever this book will be published, you use that illustration. So that was a relatively easy call then. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. And also, you know, we're like that actually it, it's a fantastic illustration. And it does sit very happily in that that whole family, this whole family. Of, it does. What we've actually books. then done, um, Stuart Little, again, uses an old illustration, but we have recolored that one. And then The Trumpet of the Swan, that is a completely new illustration. So we picked an illustrator that would be sympathetic to Charlotte's Web. So they feel like a series. And if you look at the typography on all three of those, Stuart Little and The Trumpet of the Swan have been um, inspired by Charlotte's Web. It's a wonderful bringing together of so many different disciplines as well, from, from colour and typographies and fonts and authors and illustrators. Um, I, I was... Also going to ask something which I've now completely forgotten, so we'll have to edit this bit. <laughs> Where's it gone? Where's, it, where's the one I was going to? Well, I was going to. I was going to ask. I'm sure it was terribly pertinent and clever. Oh well, it's gone. So, um, you mentioned that Carrie's. Uh, oh, that's what it was. You mentioned that some illustrators don't want to read the whole book or only want an idea. I'm surprised at that. Do you know why that might be? Sometimes they're not readers. <laughs> I have to, quite a lot of designers aren't readers and. Um, it's also it's not completely necessary sometimes I think you know you can the editors do a fantastic job at kind of summarising what's in the story and they, they can take there's a, quite often just some obvious things you know watership down you've got to have a rabbit on the front cover <laughs> basically so you know you don't actually necessarily need to read that book from start to finish to then be able to illustrate the cover um I also will admit that I have not read every single one of these books from start to finish. I've read some of them a long time ago and wouldn't necessarily remember them. But in some ways, that's quite a good thing, because then when I'm shown in my role as the kind of overseeing them all, when I'm then shown the covers, if I then say, oh, well, oh, that's about whatever. And they go, no, it's not. So, well, that illustration doesn't work. It gives us a sort of it's just a really good way of kind of gauging whether actually when you think the books are in the shops, you're wanting to appeal on the whole to new readers. You want someone to pick up a book that's going to have content that they're going to enjoy. So that illustration in five seconds has got to appeal to that reader. You've got to make them pick it up. So by doing it that way and not getting too editorial and too bogged down in the detail, you can often get the most striking illustration. A few quickfire questions for you, if I may. Which puffin book characters would you like to meet up with and where would you go with them? I have to say, I've never actually thought about meeting up with any of the characters in the books. It, it's not something, I was, they're, they're characters in books and I like my characters to stay in books. I think I might be slightly disappointed if I actually got to meet up with them. All right then. Who inspires you? Oh, so many people inspire me. Initially I was inspired to get into design by my father who worked as an architectural model maker and got me into just seeing things and visually how things put together. I've always been, it's something I've always cared 
deeply about the way things look. And so now I'm inspired by I'm inspired by architects, I'm inspired by fashion designers, I'm inspired by other book designers, but also you know designers who work on kind of CDs, record. They're not even they're not even LPs now. Now now you're gonna have to edit this bit out because I'm going. Um, so I'm inspired by every, I'm inspired by walking around and just looking. I walk to work every morning and I'll see something on the side of a bus or I'll see someone walking along and I'll go, that's the right colour for that book or oh, we could use that kind of typography on that book. You, we've been talking uh, about book covers, but is that the sole thing that you do design within Puffin or indeed elsewhere? Is, are, there other, are there any other things that you design as well? Well, my role encompasses not just Puffin, but it encompasses Lady, but it encompasses the whole of Penguin Random House Children's. So that's, you know, a lot of it is covers, but it's also, it's all the interiors, so from picture books, um, it's all the interiors of that and that's where I started off actually designing picture books but yeah my role is actually basically designing the books there is I'm obviously involved in all the extra material like we're doing a wonderful exhibition that sits with this new range so I was involved in all that kind of stuff but yeah on a day-to-day -day basis it's mainly books although I'd love to go off and be able to do other things. <laughs> there will be people listening to this who either are illustrators or designers and the idea of having a picture of theirs on the front of a book is a, a huge ambition what would you advise anybody who's who's got that idea in their heads that that notion in their hearts that they would want to design a book cover what should they do well i think it's two, it's slightly two separate things there's designing the book cover and there's also illustrating the book cover and you do sometimes get someone who does everything but ultimately if you want to illustrate book covers it's but you, you need to keep drawing you need to keep practicing but you also need to work out sort of whether you you know work out what your style is you've got to make sure that you've got a really distinctive style you're not sort of jack of all trades and you can say oh I could illustrate this baby book and I could illustrate this sort of <coughs> sorry I could illustrate a book for a baby or I could illustrate a sort of gritty teenage novel if you, it that doesn't work you've got to come up with your style make it distinctive and then just practice 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 and a lot of the cases just keep sending your work in to art directors and designers and on the whole eventually if you're good the right thing will come up I've, I've got designers and illustrators who I've contacted after say five years I, I keep a big file and we say to people oh we'll keep it on file if I say that I do mean it and then I will contact someone suddenly out of the blue and they'll go I sent you that ages ago I said just well we liked it but we didn't have the right thing now we do have the right thing it's because it's also one of the things that an illustrator should never do is just accept any commission if they don't instantly connect with it if they think do you know what actually i can't draw that or it doesn't appeal to me they should it's far better to say no and wait for the next thing if you want to become a designer ultimately again it's it's learning all the basics it's making sure that you know you know about typography, you know about layout, how things work. Again, it's drawing, it's it's laying things out by hand, not relying on the computer all the time. It's If you want to start breaking the rules, it's knowing the rules in the first place. I mean, it's perseverance, hard work. And if you weren't a designer, what do you think you'd be, apart from a frustrated designer? That's a really difficult question, because I've never, because I've, I, you know, actually, although I didn't do art at school, Although I did go on to do a graphics degree, but then I worked in TV for a bit, came back to design. I, have to admit, I always wanted to be a singer. 
someone like Debbie Harry or Chrissy Hind, but I can't sing. So that's kind of one of those things that, you know, if I got knocked out and then woke up as someone different, I'd hope I could sing. I can't imagine doing anything that didn't involve some kind of design, some kind of visual that I think, you know, interior designer would be great. I, I love going around organising things and making them look good. Anna Wilson, thank you so very much indeed for coming in and introducing us to this wonderful new design range of a puffin book. Thank you. And you can see the full collection of A Puffin Book books on the Penguin website, www.penguin.co.uk forward slash a puffin book. From book cover design to video animation, one of our marketing teams tasked a young illustrator animator to make a promotional video for the pocket version of the hugely successful book Wreck This Journal by Kerry Smith. Here's Ingrid Matz, Senior Marketing Manager at Penguin Press, introducing Gemma Green-Hope and the Wreck ethos. Kerry Smith is the author of the insanely popular Wreck This Journal. She has an army of fans around the world who vlog, blog, Tumblr, tag and pin their DIY journals every day. Individuality and creativity are at the centre of the Wreck ethos, which is why we wanted to create something really special for her new pocket-sized version of Wreck. We're talking to Gemma Green-Hope, illustrator from Wales, uh, to talk about the amazing stop-motion trailer that she made for Wreck Everywhere. So, hello Gemma. Hello. Um, what did you really enjoy about making the film for Wreck Everywhere? Well, um, animation, like for me, is usually just me on my own in a dark room for hours, um, which I do love, but it was really nice to do a project that sort of involved being outside and having adventures and just doing new, interesting, creative things. Um, so I felt like I really got into the spirit of Reckless Journal and the whole process was really so much fun. Great. Can you talk us through the process of how you would approach making a film like this and how you go about it and how long does that kind of thing normally take? Um, well, it varies quite a lot, um, but I normally start by just drawing out loads of ideas um, I really love storyboarding, so I'll plan everything out quite meticulously. Um, sometimes in the process of making the film, I do get led away from the storyboard, but I'll allow for that. Um, I like gather materials, um, make any props that I need, and sort of hand paint the backgrounds, um, and then start animating. Um, this this took a few weeks, um, this, this project, but it, it does vary from film to film. Um, I made a, fil a film recently about my grandmother um, that took a year to make because it was sort of sandwiched in between other jobs, uh, lots of late nights and early mornings. Wow, a year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's really impressive. <laughs> and especially if you want to do changing seasons. Anyway, I'm going off topic. Um, <laughs> what, what are your inspirations in film and animation? Um, I'm inspired a lot by film. I'd say, like, my favourite director is probably uh, Jean-Pierre Jeunet. Um, I really like the sort of humour and, and beauty in his work. And then animation-wise, I just love Jan Spankmeyer. Um, just how dark and surreal and amazing his films are. Um, I really like playing around with pacing and narrative and finding different ways to tell stories. Cool. And... Um are there any projects that you would really like to work on? Um, yeah, well, I live in Pembrokeshire in Wales, um, and 
so the landscape and culture are a massive influence, um, which is why it was so nice to get out and about for this project. Um, but I've just started planning a series of um, three short animations based on the Mabinogion, which are these amazing Welsh folk tales. Um, so that's something I wanted to do for a while, and I'm really glad to get started on it. That's amazing. Will you be getting out and about for those folk tales? Yeah, definitely. And were there characters involved? Yeah, there's loads of interesting characters, um, and I'd like to try like new new ways of showing them, like using sort of more natural materials, um, which kind of inspired by um, the whole process of making this uh, Reckless Journal animation. That's amazing. Can't wait to see that. Well, details. <laughs> Okay. Um, what is it that you really like about Kerry Smith personally, and um, why do you think she's so successful? Um, I just like how sort of playful um, the books are, um, and how they encourage you to interact with the world around you um, and to make a mess, which is good for me because I tend to be a bit uh, too neat sometimes, um, and just to be creative. Um, it's really interesting, like how um, you can give the same instruction to so many different people and everyone responds in a unique way and that's what kind of makes it so special I think. Definitely and you can see the plethora of unique responses to Wreck This Journal and uh, the rest of Kerry Smith's book such as Mess, Finish This Book and How to Be an Explorer of the World but you can see Gemma's incredible trailer on the Penguin YouTube channel. Gemma Greenhope, talking about producing the Wreck This Journal Everywhere promo video, which you can watch on the Penguin YouTube channel, www.youtube.com forward slash penguin books. Next, if you're an aspiring cover designer, you may already know about our next subject. The Penguin Random House Design Award is a competition we run every year to seek out the next new creative design talent. There are two categories, the Penguin Adult Prize and the Puffin Children's Prize, where the two winners are invited to spend four weeks with our in-house design teams on a work placement. Every year, the applicants face a tough judging panel, which consists of our managing directors and art directors, who are very, very scary, and two guest judges per category, which this year included Lauren Child, one of the most creative and talented author-illustrators, journalist and columnist Lucy Mangan, award-winning artist Petra Borner, and gifted paper-cutting artist Rob Ryan. Here they are, answering a few of our questions about their inspiration, what advice they would give to young designers and how they came to choose this year's winners. Hello, Penguin Podcast listeners. I'm here at the 2014 Penguin Random House Design Awards, and joining me are our guest judges, Lauren Child, Lucy Mangan, Petra Borner, and Rob Ryan, to answer a few questions about this year's competition and design in general. So, Lauren, if I could come to you first and ask you, what or who inspires you? Um, well, there's so many different things, but... Um Probably, I think, film is a big inspiration. And um, and then there are many illustrators and designers whose work I love. I'd say one particular one is an American illustrator who was married to a designer. So she, and I don't know if she studied design herself, but Myra Kalman, who works a lot with the New Yorker. And I remember when I saw her work, I loved how she puts illustration with design, and she understands that. But, I mean, it's endless, the amount of people, but that's the person I think of immediately. And what would be your advice to young people who are looking at a career in design or illustration? 
Well, I, I always think you need to look at other people's work um, just, just to understand um, how you, you place type with image. And uh, when I was studying illustration, unfortunately, we didn't, we didn't cover that at all. And it's so important to understand a page and a flat surface and understand what it, what it needs to do because um, you so often have to let go of what you think would be the best image or the best typography because it doesn't fit with um, the, you know, is it, is it impactful on when you see it on a website? It's got, it's got to do that job. It's got to work in a bookshop and draw in the eye, it's got to tell you something about the book that you're, you know, about to buy and read, and, um, and it's got, you know, it's got to be appealing. So it's, it, it has to do so many things. So I think the more you look at um, other people's work, the more you understand. And then, of course, it's about then sort of um, finding something in yourself that's different because you can't just imitate what someone else is doing. But it, I think until you understand how, it, how people design and, and, and how you put image and typography together, you can't then go on to the next thing of, of doing your own original work. And why did you agree to be a judge for the Penguin Random House Design Award? Well, because I've, um, I've worked with Anna Bilson, um, who's the designer here, for actually so many years, right from the very, very first book I ever did, which is about, I think it's about 15 years ago now. And so um, I liked the way that she saw design and, and was creative with design, because that's what I wanted. And when I took her my very, very first pieces of work, and I'd, I'd, I'd kind of muddled up uh, type and illustration she was the first designer I saw who didn't sort of groan and say, you can't do that. And so we worked together very well. Um, and so I knew it would be interesting judging a competition like that with her because she really understands. And so I think it's a great competition to, to enter this one because you've got a really, really first-rate designer judging it. And so any information and feedback she gives is going to be very good. Absolutely. And Lucy, what makes you personally pick a book off a shelf? Um, well, to be honest, for me, because I stay on top of sort of what's coming out and I, I like to read about, about books as much, almost as much as I like to read books, I've generally um, familiarity already with the title and, and, or the author. Um, but then obviously when I'm just browsing for pleasure, it's, it's, that, it's just that intangible appeal that something else and it could be it could be the typography it could be um, just just a beautiful classic picture or it could be something when you're you know you're really tired you could just be going for genre and be very glad for all the guidance they can give you you know with the foil embossed this that and the other I'm happy either way uh, slightly out there question next uh, which kids book would you take to start a new civilization on the moon well I think for both uh, pleasure and practical purposes, you should take the full set of Laura Ingalls, Laura Ingalls Wilder. Um, bit of Judy Bloom to see you through those awkward stages. And 
Well, I suppose if we're talking about how to, you should you should maybe if you're packing if you've only got a limited luggage space on the rocket, um, then you should probably take uh, the children of the new forest rather than um, no, because again, that's going to you're not going to have to start from scratch on the moon, are you? No, I've, I'm going to have to rethink this. And to go back to the awards, what did you think of the design award entries? Oh, I didn't know how we were going to make make a decision, but um, we had to we had to sort of do it in lots of tranches and just gradually whittle it down because that's once you get to such a strong shortlist you really got to get down then to just the nitty-gritty and really fight it out amongst you very civilized way of course great thank you and now coming over to you petra what was your first job in design so my first job in design was from my mother because she's a surgeon, she gave me a job to illustrate medical journal journals. But my first real job um, was actually with Penguin, quite a long time ago, to, um, to do the covers for a selected poems series. And obviously now, being an author and illustrator yourself, how do you describe that book cover design process with your own books? Um, so it varies from each each project varies very much how how much um, you're driven by the brief and how much freedom you have to interpret the story but usually you would start with the story and let the narrative sort of um, inspire you and then sometimes work as a team to come up with the direction but I think generally it's a very intuitive and instinctive process and what were you looking for in the winning cover this year uh, I wanted to find uh, a link with the story that was quite clear and um, a dynamic cover, something that stood out to me in terms of style, in terms of the times, perhaps what's about today. Um, uh, innovative take on the actual process of the cover, the technique used. Definitely. Finally, Rob, what influences you to pick a book off a shelf? Um, well, I suppose, like most people, I have my fav favourite subjects and favourite writers, you know. So um, I guess I go into a bookshop already kind of with an idea of the kind of things I like. You know, I like... Um, I kind of quite like... Um, Quite quiet stories, you know, um, quite stories of the everyday. So I guess in a way, I kind of am attracted to quiet covers, understated covers. But having said that, I'm quite a big fan of crime fiction as well. So um, I guess there's a certain type of um, cover that might attract me if I think that the hero is, um, like the detective in a crime thing, is the kind of guy I might like, which is really hard to pin down, but it's one of those things that you kind of know it when you see it. Mind you, I've bought books with the most awful covers and they're my favourite books, you know. I mean, the trouble is there's so many really nice covers at the moment, so you go into a bookshop and you don't know where to start because loads of uh, books look really interesting and really attractive. And, um, and it's just trying to work out the ones that you think you're going to like, you know. And why did you agree to be a guest judge? I think because, I mean, I get asked to do a few things like this, and I don't want to tell the truth, I love being in the studio working. That's my thing. And I kind of would do something like this maybe once every 
month or so. So I think that was the best offer, offer I'd had that month. So I said yes. I kind of rationed myself to the amount of things. And I thought, this looks interesting and good fun. And it's a couple of hours at the studio. I'll do it. Lastly, what did you think of the entries overall? I thought the standard was so much, was high, you know. Um, they're undergraduates, so they haven't already, you know, done covers, and some of them looked like they've been doing them for years. So uh, there was a kind of level of accomplishment that almost makes you feel a bit suspicious. Are they really students? <laughs> but no, they, um, it was... Uh, it was, it was good, it was good. I mean, very professional. When I was at college and I was just leaving, I didn't really have much of a clue about anything, you know. Um, I guess kids grow up younger these days. The four guest judges from this year's Penguin Random House Design Award. And this year's shortlist and winner's designs can be viewed on the website, www.penguindesignaward.co.uk. Finally, one of Britain's most celebrated artists. Later this year, we'll be releasing Grayson Perry's book, Playing to the Gallery, where he talks about his own funny, personal journey through the art world and answers the basic questions that might occur to us in an art gallery. In this extract from the audiobook, which is taken from a live recording from the Wreath Lectures in 2013, Grayson talks about what actually qualifies as contemporary art. In my last Wreath Lecture, I talked about quality and who or how or what ends up in our galleries and how it got there. In this one, I want to talk about what sort of things do and do not qualify as contemporary art. Now, if you ask that question in the art world, there'd be a lot of eye-rolling and sort of like, oh, God, you know, not that question again. Like, it's been answered. And I think that that is often, you know, there's a kind of uh, a complacent idea in the art world that, those, that anything can be art now. So it's quite a task that I'm sort of set myself today in what, what many people regard as kind of the post-historical art world, the post-postmodern, the, the end of art. We're in a state now where anything goes. But the thing is, I think there are boundaries still about what can and cannot be art. Um, but the limits are softer, they're fuzzier. And I think they're not formal. Anything can be art. I, I'm quite happy to engage with that intellectual idea. But I think the boundaries are sociological, tribal, philosophical, and maybe even financial. And I've called this talk Beating the Bounds. Now, Beating the Bounds is a ritual that used to go on right back in Anglo-Saxon times uh, before maps. So when a parish wanted to make sure that everybody knew where the edge of their parish was, that some of the older parishioners who knew them very well would take some of the younger parishioners out and they would march them round with the priest in a very ceremonial way. And when they reached a kind of major sort of marker stone or something like that, sometimes they would get a whip and they would beat the boys so that they had a strong emotional memory of that exact location. Because that's how we remember things. Taxi drivers have told me that, oh, it's a murder on that corner. And that's how they know that corner. That, because our, our emotional remembering is very powerful. And so I want this, this evening to give you a few little stings of the whip, like that, just so that you might remember where the major boundary markers are as we troll around the edge of the art world. But of course, there's a subsidiary question that kind of hangs in the air. And I maybe want you to hold this one in the back of your mind as I'm giving this talk. Why would someone want anything they're doing to be considered art? 
Because I mean, there's quite a lot of reasons. The most obvious one is because they're an artist. It's what I do. Maybe they just want a good excuse to do something. You know, there's a lot of, I fancy doing that, let's call it art. And of course, probably one of the strongest reasons why you would want your activity to be called art is economic. Because there's an awful lot of money, £43 billion last year, sloshing through the art market. So that's quite a nice incentive to call what you do art. Now, going right back, the Greeks, they didn't have a word for fine art as we understand it. And the Romans, uh, they, they thought sculpture and painting and things like that, they put those in the dishonourable arts because they involved a lot of mess and hard labour, and so they didn't see them as one of the higher arts. And um, the, art, the art historian Hans Belting, he thought that the idea of art we have today, of things we go to see in galleries and that we contemplate as objects, started in about 1400. And this kind of trolled along, and it was refined, and sort of we took it for granted. Oh, yeah, that's art, that's art, that's art. Until modernism came along, late 19th century, mid-19th century, people started questioning, what was art? What's this thing we're doing? And it went through this long transition, this very self-conscious thing, where people, artists, started questioning the nature of art. Until along came Duchamp, who famously posited that anything could be art. But the idea of the traditional still lingers on. If you're on Google Maps and you put in object of interest uh, art gallery, the symbol that shows you where the art gallery is is a little black painter's palette. That idea of what art is is still very, even in the 21st century age, is still very pertinent. It's like a child's definition of art. If you ask a child what art is, they'd probably say painting and sculpture, unless they were sort of a North London child, a very smart-ass child that had been to a lot of performance art or something like that. <laughs> and I'm still very emotionally attached to that whole thing, because you know, going back to this idea of emotional memory and, and, and intellectual memory, I'm, you know, I grew up thinking that was art, and I've, I, all the art I love is quite traditional, and so... You know, even though I can intellectually engage and even appreciate some of the more expanding field of art, I still am more emotionally attached to the old thing. A live recording from the Wreath Lectures in 2013 of Grayson Perry talking about the contemporary art world. You'll be able to hear the lecture in its entirety next month in the audiobook edition of Playing to the Gallery. And that's it from the Penguin Podcast this time. Don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes for future podcast episodes and head to SoundCloud for other author readings and audiobook extracts at www.soundcloud.com forward slash penguin hyphen books. To find out more about the authors and books featured in this episode, visit the website thepenguinpodcast.co.uk and if you have any comments or suggestions, you can email them to podcast at uk.penguingroup.com or find us on Twitter at Penguin Podcast. You've been listening to The Penguin Podcast.